0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And while you turn there, I'd just like to offer some brief comments about the alteration to our normal Sunday gatherings in recording this message. Now, normally, we gather on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, as his church, to sing his praise, to encourage one another, and to hear the preaching and teaching of his word. Uh, Due to the national health crisis brought about by COVID-19 and in keeping with the federal and state uh, guidelines from our leaders, we have uh, decided not to meet Sunday, March 22nd or the 29th. We'll readjust and reevaluate based on the instructions and guidelines we get uh, and, and where things are at from there. But certainly for these two Sundays, we're not meeting. We'll be in our individual homes. And so consequently, I am not speaking this message To the assembled body but rather in my shed to a wall and so i am a little out of my usual element i pray god will still give grace and that his word will be no less powerful even given the frailty and the weakness of his servant Um, but i think this study of ephesians continuing in it is helpful for us and particularly as our text this morning of the next few weeks will focus on the theme Of the work and the activity of the church in maintaining and keeping the unity of the body and the maturity of the body and these are going to be things that will be challenging for us as we uh, continue to engage in social distancing they're no less important but we may need to think outside of the box and creatively for ways to maintain the unity of the spirit and to build the maturity of the body So i trust that god's word will be instructive edifying and a blessing to us let's begin by reading this first section of ephesians chapter 4 we're not going to get through all of it this morning but the section is 16 verses long so let's begin by reading ephesians 4 1 to 16. i therefore prisoner for the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Dear God, I just pray that you give grace. Grace to me as I try to teach your word in an unusual format and setting. and Grace to your body as we hear it in unusual fashion not gathered together as your people but scattered separately in our homes our houses so i pray that person by person family by family you would bless your word that you would cause it to grow and, and bear fruit in our lives that you would overcome my weakness and the weakness of our current situation and that you would sanctify your people and your bride it's in jesus name that i pray amen now, we'll begin our study this morning looking at walking in unity. Walking in unity. As we look at the first section of Paul's first walk. Remember, last week we saw that chapters 4 and 5 uh, focused on five walks, five ways of living out the Christian faith. And that division of walk is rooted back in chapter 2. If you turn there. Remember chapter two of those two contrasts, the two before and afters. And then in the first contrast, Paul reminds us of our former way of life, and it was characterized by a certain walk. To one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, the idea of walking is living. It, it's your, your life and living throughout the day. Prior to the automobile, most people on the planet got where they were going by Walking. And so they're walking about, they're moving about throughout the day, they're walking. So walking, then, is a metaphor for living. So you used to live throughout your day in a certain way, in the deadness of your trespasses and sins, and, and God has made us alive, and he's raised us, and he's seated us. So consequently, verse 10 We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we used to have a former walk associated with our spiritual deadness, slavery. And now we've been made anew in Christ to walk differently, to live differently. And it's that different way of living that will structure the second half of the epistle. So Paul's first different way of living. His new walk for us is seen here in verse 1, and it's walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And now that worthy walk has two sections. We're looking at the first this morning, verses 1 to 6. Walking in unity, and then the coming weeks, we'll look at the second aspect of walking worthy, which is walking in maturity, verses 7 through 16. So this morning's message, we're looking at walking in unity, and we're going to look at that section, verses 1 to 6, in three parts. First, we're going to look at Paul's exhortation to the body, his call to walk. Then we're going to look at the call for unity itself, and then the basis of unity. So Paul's opening exhortation is called to walk in a worthy way. Then we're going to see the call in specific for unity and the basis for unity. So let's begin our first point looking at the call to walk in a worthy manner. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So when we begin a, a sentence with therefore, we need to look and see what it is there for. Now here, it pretty clearly responds to everything Paul has said so far in the epistle the therefore reaches back and encapsulates chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, we had a 14-verse sentence celebrating all of God's redemptive work on our behalf that spans from eternity past, when we were chosen, to the present, when we were called and redeemed, to the future, when we will be glorified and receive our inheritance. It involves all three members of the Trinity, And we are acted upon as grace is lavished upon us. In chapter 2, we were taught how our former deadness was remedied through resurrection. Our former slavery was remedied through ascension. Our former future of wrath replaced with a future of rule with Christ as we've been recreated for good works. And then we saw how God solved our problem of alienation as Gentiles. We had no God, no hope, no covenant, no savior, no people. And he has, with the Jews, with Israel, he has fashioned us into a new man, the church. So we are no longer aliens and strangers, but we are fellow citizens with the saints. It's not that he's made the Gentiles into Jews, but he's made both Jew and Gentile into his church. He has unified us together. These are the glorious realities that Paul is drawing upon when he says... Therefore, because of all that God has done, because of the lavish richness of his grace, he will urge us to walk in a certain way. But he doesn't just reach back there with therefore, he also brings in himself and his own apostolic authority. He says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. And here he's reminding us of his own apostolic authority. The last time he brought up his imprisonment was in chapter three, where he was undergirding This teaching about the church, which he proclaimed as a mystery. The fact that God would send his suffering servant, his son, his Messiah, to die for, to redeem his people. That clearly was taught in the Old Testament. But that God would create one new people. That he would abolish the law of commandments and ordinances, and remove the dividing wall of separation, and create in himself one new man, that, Paul says, is a mystery. That is a new teaching, and he understands that that requires warrant, support, for people to receive and believe it. And so, in chapter 3, to undergird that teaching, he tells us about his own apostolic commission and imprisonment on their behalf. Let me read. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And so Paul is telling them there that God personally revealed these truths to him and he commissioned him to be an apostle for the Gentiles, for you and for me. And that in carrying out that stewardship, Paul, the apostle for the Gentiles, was imprisoned on behalf of the Gentiles. So by reminding us of that here, Paul is bringing a second great reason for us to listen to him. The first great reason for us to listen to him is all of the marvelous truths that have been declared in the first three chapters. The second is that the very apostle that God gave for the Gentile church the very one who is suffering for them and imprisoned for them, we ought to listen to him as well. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. So two powerful reasons for us to listen. Because of the truth that has come before and because of the one who is speaking and even suffering for the Gentile church, Paul in chains, in prison, he then urges us to walk. This is not a suggestion, not a recommendation. This is an apostolic command, an exhortation. What he urges us to do is to walk in a manner worthy of the call to which you've been called. Now, it's important here to offer a piece of clarification. We hear the word worthy and we may be tempted to think meritorious, deserving. That is absolutely not what Paul is saying. We've got to be clear here. Paul is not saying live in such a way that you deserve to be chosen. Live in such a way that you deserve to be saved. That would establish a works righteousness. That would destroy grace. That would upend everything Paul has taught so far in Ephesians. Now our English word worthy could mean that. But the Greek word behind the English word in the ESV (coughs) actually has the idea of fitting, appropriateness, suitableness. It's actually the word we get the English word axiom from. What Paul is actually saying is that there is a corresponding, fitting, and suitable way for us to live in accordance to the call to which we've been called. We all understand this notion that depending on the different spheres that we are in, whether you're in the workplace, whether you're at a sporting arena, whether you're at church, there are different fitting, suitable ways to conduct yourself. It can be fitting and suitable and appropriate to stand up and cheer when you're at a sporting event, not so much when you're at a board meeting. I wouldn't mind it if you did it on Sunday morning, but it probably would be a little distracting. There's also different codes of dress and conduct and ways to interact in different spheres that we get that are are corresponding fitting, appropriate to the context that we are in. That is what Paul is saying. He is urging us, exhorting us, commanding us, because of all that God has done for us, because of his own apostolic ministry and suffering, to live in a way suitable, corresponding to, fitting to the call to which we've been called. Now that notion of calling shows up twice here in this verse, and twice again in verse four. If you look down, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. Now, in highlighting this particular grace, the calling of God, I believe Paul is singling out the reality that he is the one who initiated our salvation. He is the one who initiated us. What he is calling us to do is to respond. Again, making it clear that we're not... living in a way deserving God's grace, but rather because we have been called, now it is fitting for us to live in an appropriate and corresponding way. So that is his opening exhortation, to, to live part of this new walking, being fashioned anew in Christ, to live differently now based on all that's come before, based on his own authority as an apostle, suffering in chains for the Gentile church. So again, notice the movement here. First, there is truth laid out and declared. And then God's people, after hearing and receiving and understanding his truth, then we live differently in response to that truth. Because we've been saved and because we learn about and understand that salvation, now we live differently. It is the fruit of our salvation and not its root. It is the corresponding and fitting result of what God has done, not its cause. The cause of your salvation, God's choice in eternity past, to adopt you and me, to call you and me, to send his son to die for you and me. That, that is the basis, the foundation of our salvation. Here we see the consequence, the result, the fruit of it. need to make that clear. So this opening call to walk in a worthy way will govern the first 16 verses of this chapter. And as I said earlier, Paul has two fundamental ideas in mind of worthiness. The first is unity. The second is maturity. And so another important point to make here is that this exhortation is corporate. We will not be able to obey these commands in isolation. That's partly why I said our current social distancing situation will make this tricky and difficult. We'll need to be creative and thoughtful, but we must do it. The call for unity and the call for maturity, as we will see, is tremendously important and not something we can set aside. Even as we can set aside some of our gatherings and some of the ways we do things, the priority and the importance of maintaining our unity and of growing in maturity cannot be stopped, paused, or diminished in the slightest because of everything that God has done in the first three chapters, because of the Apostle Paul's exhortation to command. So this morning, we're just looking at the call to unity. And in the coming week or two, we will look at the call to maturity. But those are the two ideas Paul has for walking in a worthy way. And both of them require others in the church. None of these can be done by yourself. You cannot do these things sitting alone in the shed. So, let's now look at his call to unity. Paul's call to unity in verse two and three. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now here we see three things. The character traits and attitudes necessary for unity. The attitudes of unity, the activity of unity, how it's actually done, and then the goal of unity, what we're trying to do in our unity, okay? So first, the attitude of unity. Paul gives three character traits here that are going to be necessary and prerequisites for our maintaining unity. The first is with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So let's take a look at these briefly, one by one. Humility. Now this was just as counter to the Greek and Roman mind of Paul's day as it is for us now. It, to be true, people like the word humility, but we live in a day and a culture, just as Paul did, obsessed with self, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-actualization, a culture obsessed with what people think about me, how many likes my most recent post got, focused on treating me with respect. And yet Paul here says, if we're going to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, we will need to humble and abase ourselves. We will need to esteem others, not self-esteem, but others' esteem. We'll need to focus not on our own rights and privileges, but on something greater than ourselves. Now in this, we have the the perfect example and model of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, becoming a servant, even unto the point of death. So, so we're following in Jesus' footsteps when we humble ourselves. But, but if we're going to live in a fitting way corresponding to our call, and again, this gets back to the logic of the gospel, God did not choose us because of how great we were. We did not accomplish great things that merited God's choice of us. Rather, we were dead. We were slaves. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. All of these are reasons why we ought to remain humble. Yes, God intends great and wondrous things for us, but it is not a declaration of our worth, but of his great love and mercy with which he loved us. So, if we're to maintain the unity of the spirit. We need to dress ourselves with humility and to get our focus off of ourselves. This is so hard. We're hardwired this way, right? We get mistreated and you won't treat me that way. And yet based on everything that's come before. This is why Paul lays out the first three chapters the way he does. We need these truths to smash the idols of pride and self in our own hearts, to humble ourselves and abase ourselves, right? Because a broken spirit and a contrite heart, these are the sacrifices of God that he does not despise. They don't come easily. We need these truths to fight for humility. Next with humility, gentleness. I think these just flow right out of each other because if you think of it negatively, if I'm proud and self-centered, then when you irritate me, when you snub me, when you disrespect me, I get angry and violent. No, I'm first humble, and then I am gentle, even when I'm mistreated. Just like Jesus, when he was threatened, when he was abused, he did not threaten in return, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We become gentle when people wrong us we, we don't become angry. We, we are humble. We're gentle, which leads right into the last one. Patient. Patient. And again, you can see how these assume other people. These assume other people. <laughs> assume other people. I, I need other people to do these things with. I need to be patient. And again, that can be challenging because people can be difficult and slow and challenging. And so only as we bear in mind all that God has done for us and all that God has promised for us and bear in mind the the perfect example of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, can we hope to live this way. But we must be humble, gentle, and patient. And then with, with that gear on, if you will, we can then begin the activity of unity. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So the attitudes are humility, gentleness, and patience. The work that we're actually doing is bearing with one another in love. And again, this, this is counterintuitive for us. We, we live in an individualistic time and nation and culture. We don't like to rely on others. We, we liked our own space. We like our own way of doing things. This is even more compounded with social distancing. And so what generally we find in our own experience is, is living life with other people is challenging. I don't always get what I want. I don't always get the respect I think I deserve. I don't always get the treatment that I require. And so I can tend to become angry and proud and, and be impatient. And so one of the solutions of dealing with that is simply I'll pull back and pull away from other people. But that's not what God is calling us to do. We might be tempted to think I know how I'll not get irritated at others. I just won't spend time with others. But no, the very purpose for us garbing ourselves, clothing ourselves with humility and gentleness and patience is so we can get about the work of bearing with one another in love. We've got to be in there in the mix with others. And of course, this presupposes there's a burden to bear. That's why we need the patience and the gentleness. Because this is messy work. It's hard work. It's glorious work. The work of peace and unity is not in us all being separate and polite. Again, unbelievers can do this. It doesn't take supernatural grace and calling To see each other for an hour, once a week, and be polite to each other and pleasant to each other, that that, that's not supernatural. Any pagan can do that. The bearing with one another in love assumes a greater involvement in each other's lives. You know how this is. When we get more involved with other people, They takes more of us and from us, and it can be tiring, and it can be frustrating, because after all, there are people just like you and me. This is the work of unity that God has called all of us to, not just some of us. And so the easy out for us is to set up boundaries and cordon off sections and really only get involved with others on a very limited basis, always with a route of retreat, always being able to maintain our own autonomy, privacy, our own set of rules. And not that there isn't a place for uh, time alone, not that there isn't a place for peace and quiet and rest, But Paul is assuming an engagement in each other's lives, a living together that will necessitate the humility, the gentleness, and the patience with which we then bear with one another in love. Because that's the activity of unity, but what's the goal? And again, I think you'll see here when you see the goal of unity, it's not that we have nice, pleasant, happy, smiley, shallow, Relationships where we see each other once or twice a week for an hour or two at a time, rather eager, he says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What is the work of unity? It's to keep what God has made. Now, yes, the Bible can speak in other places of us being peacemakers, but here we're peacekeepers. Christ has already made the peace. What's he referring to? Turn back to chapter 2. He's already told us the peace that God has made. And again, this will give us some inkling of just how intimate and how involved it assumes we are. through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints or countrymen members of the household of God. So the first picture of our unity is of countrymen. The second is members of the same household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone into whom the whole structure being joined together, we are joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the level of unity and intimacy that Christ has made. He has made peace. and Here, clothed in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, we are to be eager to maintain and keep that peace. Because, of course, our sin can break the peace. And when it does, we need to maintain it. We need to deal with conflict and deal with offenses and deal with conflict in a biblical and righteous way because this peace that has been made for us at such a cost must be maintained. That's the logic. God has gone to such great lengths to make peace for us. How can we think of it being broken as a small thing? No, we need to be eager zealous to maintain the peace that Christ has made. We're only going to do that when we clothe ourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience, and get about the hard work of bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Dealing with conflict, dealing with issues is hard work. It is so much easier to give up on this It's particularly difficult when there are so many churches in our region where if you don't like somebody, if you don't like something, somebody does, you just go someplace else. That's not what Paul's calling on us to do. We're to do the hard work of being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, bearing with one another in love. That is the work of unity. That's the work of unity, which again means this is intensely practical and local. Don't be thinking of this unity, first and foremost, in some universal global church sense. I can't maintain the unity and the bond of peace of the church down the street, let alone the church in China or Pakistan. But I do have some hope. We have some hope of of doing this work here in our body. So so think locally, first and foremost. If we can do this locally, there there will be ripple effects to other churches as it goes out. But first and foremost, this is a call to dealing with eagerly, zealously dealing with those things that break peace in the church so we can maintain the peace that Christ has made. That's first and foremost what it means to walk in a worthy manner. That's also what it means, interestingly enough, to fulfill the second greatest commandment. Remember the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like unto it. And the second greatest commandment is not found in the Ten Commandments found in Leviticus 19 and has everything to do with what we've been talking about. Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So get this, in its original context, in Leviticus 19, where it is written, love your neighbor as yourself, the context is don't bear a grudge against your neighbor. Don't be angry with your neighbor. Go reason frankly with your neighbor. And in so doing, you will love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Paul is saying here, don't become offended. Don't separate. Rather, be humble, be gentle, be patient, bear with one another in love. Bear with our weaknesses, bear with our difficulties, bear with our warts and wrinkles in love because we are eager to maintain what Christ has accomplished for us because of all that God has done for us. That's the rationale. That's the call to unity. But Paul's not done here. That that is the call of unity. We've got the attributes for unity, activity of unity, the goal of unity, but he's not done yet. He's going to give us the basis for unity. We've seen previously in the epistle what God has done. Now we're going to get a further unpacking of the reality of that unity. Just how unified are we? We're gonna see we're very unified. Paul's gonna give us seven points of unity. I I think Paul might be concerned of the church splitting again. He's just taught them that Jew and Gentile should coexist in one body, but honestly, wouldn't it be a lot easier if Jew and Gentile just formed their own churches? I mean, they dress differently, they eat differently, they, they look different, they got different customs, different backgrounds. No, I think I think Paul is concerned that that might happen. And so he is bringing everything he has to bear to stop that from happening, from heading it off at the pass. This is one of the reasons why we, it's not a healthy thing to see in the same community churches form around different ethnocentric groups. The church should be diverse. We don't want young church and old church and white church and black church. We want the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, young and old. because the glory of the church is this work that God has done in unifying so disparate and disalike elements together. Again, the world is not impressed when a bunch of people who have everything in common get together and spend time together. But I guarantee you in the first century the world was impressed when slaves and masters, Jews and Greeks, citizens and the lowliest of lowly got together and honored each other and served each other and bared with one another in love. That would be impressive. So Paul here gives them the basis of the unity. Another way of thinking about it is this. If we're tempted to reject his exhortation, we are contradicting the very reality of our faith. Look at, look at the reality, the basis of our unity here that he gives us. Seven ones. There is one, and he'll say what it is. Verse four, there is one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul Paul is being emphatic here. There is only one faith. There is only one hope. There's only one body. There's only one spirit. We need to live in a way that demonstrates that reality. And the danger is we will live in a way, we will divide in ways that make it think that there are many lords and many spirits and many faiths. So, let's go through the list. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because there is one body. Now, yes, there are many, many, many local churches scattered all over the earth, but there is only one capital C church There's only one body. And if we are willing to recognize another person's profession of faith as credible and legitimate, if we will receive them as a brother or sister, then they are all part of that family, all part of that household, all fellow citizens. These are all the metaphors Paul used at the end of chapter 2. So when we meet Christians, we're meeting brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. We're meeting our fellow countrymen. There is one body. Not many bodies. There is one body. And there is one spirit. Again, the spirit who we've been told was given as a seal and deposit is the same spirit. The same spirit indwells Baptists as Presbyterians. If they're Christians, we're indwelt by one and the same spirit. And again, the rationale is if God the spirit lives in me and God the spirit lives in you, how can we simply because it's easier act as though we're of a different sort? And I know this is raising questions and I'll, I'll try to deal with those at the end here. But that's the logic. There is one body. We need to live as though there's one body. There is one spirit, not Many just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The same calling is is the same for every one of us. And we're called to the same hope, to the same end goal. We're all going to the same destination. Another way to look at it is this way. We need to learn to get along now because we're going to spend eternity together. So we, we can give the lie to that now and divide up there are not going to be ghettos in heaven we will be unified there we need to begin to act as we are and as we will be now There's one body one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call there's one lord Now, the Lord here, I believe, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one master. That's the idea behind Lord. To confess Jesus as Lord is to confess him as master. We have one boss, one ruler, one king. All of us. There's one head of our household. There's one king of our city or nation. And so, because we're all behoving to him, we all answer to him, we all call on him, Lord, we need to be able to work together. One faith. There is one standard of truth, one set of doctrine. Now, this is, again, where, where I'll try to bring in one of the difficulties here of, of our current situation. Ever since the Reformation... Um, there's been hundreds and now thousands of different Christian denominations. In fact, one of the challenges made against Martin Luther is you're unleashing chaos on the world. And so how then can I speak of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, when we've got even in Norwalk or Indianola, Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches and different denominations and don't these things, um, are they disobedient to scripture? There are some who say we should get do away with all these distinctions and just be one. Yeah, except there's one faith. To the degree that we divide over our understanding of truth, to the degree that we divide over what we believe God's word says is true, we can be faithful Let me say that again. To the degree that we're dividing over our understanding of God's word and truth, that division can be faithful. It depends on the significance of the division. Make a simple example. We divide from Mormons because we believe they don't even have the gospel correct. We don't have the same Jesus. Their understanding of Jesus is he's a created being. So we don't even have one Lord. We have a different Lord. We have a different faith. You see, one of the cheap cop-outs for unity is to set aside truth. And again, you can get an ecumenical movement together if we simply jettison the doctrine and the faith and the content of the faith. We can have a superficial unity. The challenge is a unity that has one Lord, one faith, one hope. So that's that's the challenge. Paul won't compromise on either side of this. He's absolutely... In fact, there is only one call, one spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, one faith. And yet, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So the the cheap, easy answer is, well, we can do that. Just get rid of doctrine. No creed but Christ. Which, whenever I hear that, I try to point out... That is a creed. It's woefully insufficient, but it is a creed. You got there. Well, there's one faith. This would be hard work, as we're going to see the rest of this first section. There's a lot of gifts that are necessary to build the body up. In fact, jump ahead. You'll see how we start dealing with some of these doctrinal issues. It's, again, more hard work. Christ is going to first have to give the church gifts. Look at verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, which is what? The building up of the body of Christ. To what degree or standard? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Ooh, the unity of the faith. The knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To what effect? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, Paul cares deeply about pure, sound, solid doctrine. He wants us to grow up and mature so we're not knocked about by every new doctrinal fad because there's one faith, and our unity has to be around truth. We can't compromise truth in the name of unity. That's why it's hard work. Which means we ought to be meeting with our brothers and sisters in the family who have disagreements of doctrine. We ought to be trying to work towards one-mindedness and unity. We ought to do that work. The temptation, we can there's two ditches, one on either side of the road. The one temptation is to say of those who have any different view than ours, fooey, to heck with them, Then we're not being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The other temptation is to say, you know what, who cares? Let's just all get together and sing Kumbaya. That's wrong too. No, there's one faith. We, We need to be mature, not tossed to and fro by every doctrine. And we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Which means probably we're going to need to do a lot of reading and praying and talking and one anothering with our brothers and sisters so that we can come to a unity of the faith. Okay, that's that's a long aside. Back to chapter 4, verse 5. We're nearly done here. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. There's not different baptisms for different levels and different degrees. What he's pointing at is there's one entry right into the body. And baptism itself brings us into the spirit's baptism brings us into the body we're baptized by one spirit into one body paul says in 1 corinthians 12. so the one lord has brought us into the one body by the one spirit through his one baptism into the one faith that that's the idea all of these again reasons why we must be eager to maintain the unity that christ has made is we serve one Lord through one spirit having been brought into the body through one baptism and again not, not the removal of water and not the removal of dirt from the body but the appeal to God of a, of a good conscience um, don't want to be any confusion there we're not saved by water baptism but the spirits immersing us into Christ is effective and salvific one baptism and then finally one God and Father of all We have one father. And here's the most striking logic. I I have children. I want my children to get along. I want my children to be unified. It would dismay me. I would be grieved if I found out that my children were forming permanent, separate camps that had nothing to do with each other. To quote, John, nothing gives me greater joy than to see my children walking in unity in the truth. How sweet of this brothers to dwell together in harmony. God did what he did in calling us, choosing us, redeeming us, sending his son for us so that he could make us one. How can we then say no? He intends to have one unified family that he is father over. How can we say, I'm not interested in that? We can't, or certainly we can't without being tremendously unfaithful, unthankful, and honestly bordering on blasphemy. It's so easy today to just go down the street and find a church that meets when you want to meet and sings the style of songs you want to sing, has the dress code you like, And what we're called to do here is to labor to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here's here's a hint. If, If maintaining the unity isn't hard work, we're not doing it right. It requires that we clothe ourselves with humility, gentleness, and patience. That we bear with one another. That whole metaphor involves the notion of bearing a burden, hard work, labor, Bearing with one another in love. It's going to take love to do this. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If that doesn't sound like what you're doing, you're not doing it right. If we have found some new way to make peace that doesn't involve that, we're not helping things. Like I said earlier, it's easy enough to get a superficial, surface-level peace and unity that looks good from a thousand yards out but has no substance or reality to it. And we will ultimately do it by jettisoning one of these seven realities down here. We'll just jettison the truth. you know. We just won't deal with doctrine. Or something like that. No, we, we need to be zealous for unity because there is unity in the faith. One God and Father over all. That harkens back to Paul's prayer in chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is a Father. He's revealed himself that way. He intends for his children to be unified. He has gone to great lengths that we might be unified. He has made the unity. He just calls on us to maintain it, to keep it. And make no mistake, that is going to be awfully hard work. Which is why we're going to see in the coming weeks, he gives us gifts supernaturally to accomplish that, to grow in maturity. But let me just leave this morning with the thought, there's one father over all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, there's the hope. There's the hope. This is, I want you to get, this is difficult. What Paul is calling us to is very hard, intensive, exhausting. It's hard to humble ourselves over and over again. It's hard to be gentle for long periods of time and patient. I can be so impatient. To bear with one another when I don't want to. But to bear with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. When honestly, I frequently would just like to be left alone and not to deal with other people. And again, there, there can be, there's place for rest. But we have to be committed, zealous, eager to the lifelong project of maintaining the unity, the body, and the bond of peace. Because of the glorious reality that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, here we get some idea of how we're going to do this. Because not as the overall But verse 6, he's over all and through all and in all. Now that's going to be the segue to where Paul moves to and pivots to next. He's been focusing on these unity metaphors with oneness. He's going to pivot, and we're going to see next week, to diversity among unity. That to each one, a gift was given, a different gift special, unique gift to each one. Even as there's this oneness and unity, there is diversity. But that's what I just want you to see here, he is over all and through all and in all. We can have hope to embrace this project of unity and peace because the God who is Father over us all is in and through us all. He empowers us all. He is going to gift and equip us all for this work. So you're only seeing this rightly if you see it from the one hand as an impossibly difficult task left to ourselves. If, if you don't see this call for unity as impossibly difficult in the flesh, you're not seeing it rightly. I've got to emphasize that just because in polite society, in the consumer age, it can be so tempting to think without the Spirit, without grace, without help, we got unity. Whatever that thing is you've got, it's not what Paul Is talking about. You you need to see this as impossibly difficult and exhausting in the flesh. Bearing with one another in love, constantly humbling ourselves, being gentle, being patient, maintaining the unity again and again. Because it's gonna get broken every day, every week, over and over and over again because we're sinful and we're broken people. And we're gonna get Tired of maintaining that unity for the 27th time this week. So you need to see it as, as, as daunting. But you also need to see it as the Father who made the unity is in us and working through us and will equip us and empower us to maintain the unity. And that's how he receives the glory. If we could do this in our own strength, we'd get the glory if this was just some clever plan to maintain unity, five easy steps, we could bask in that glory. We could do that work. But when God calls us to a, an impossible task that he then equips us to accomplish, he gets the glory. God has not made this unity to let us destroy it. He will give us the strength and the power and as we'll see next week, the gifts to achieve it, not just to be unified, but to grow and mature. So in closing, I just want to encourage you to, to, to embrace this reality. This is the n- first aspect of the new walk, the new works that we were created in Christ Jesus for. God purchased our unity. He made our unity. And I, like a father, giving their children some great and precious gift. He says, take care of it. Don't break it. When you do, maintain it. Put it back together. I want you to think about that through social distancing. It's going to be less intuitive and a little more challenging to do that, but we can. We can call each other. We can encourage each other. We can write each other letters and texts. We, We can think outside of the box. I had a meeting with someone this week we sat in my driveway about 15 feet apart and had glorious fellowship for about two hours but we need to be about this work We need to be maintaining that unity I've been so encouraged seeing some of you uh, doing exactly that and so I just would encourage you all the more don't don't think of these this time of not gathering as a as a pause from this work but rather as a new season for this work Let us, by God's help, depending on his grace, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, bearing with one another in love, because there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. And praise God, he is over all and through all and in all. And in that confidence, we can undertake that task. I look forward to seeing the way God will glorify himself in our body in the coming days and weeks. I have already been so blessed as I've seen and heard of ways that you are encouraging one another, maintaining that unity. I just pray that you would do it more and more, that we would all do it more and more. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have accomplished on our behalf. Lord, I just pray that you would give us this vision, this zeal, this eagerness, this priority for for unity. That we would not treat it lightly, that we would not undervalue it, but that we would be zealous and diligent for it. Give us the humility, the gentleness, the patience that does not come naturally. Give it to us that we might walk in it. Give us the zeal and the energy to again and again do this important work. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.